Blog Talk Radio. A long time ago, there lived a giant, a selfish giant, whose stunning garden was the most beautiful in all the land. One evening, this giant came home and found all these children playing in his garden, and he became enraged. My own garden is my own garden, the giant said, and he built this high wall around it. The author, Oscar Wilde, wrote the story of the selfish giant in 1888. Almost a hundred years later, that giant moved into my Brooklyn childhood and never left. I was raised in a religious family, and I grew up reading both the Bible and the Quran. The hours of reading, both religious and recreational, far outnumbered the hours of television watching. Now, on any given day, you could find my siblings and I curled up in some part of our apartment reading. Sometimes unhappily, because on summer days in New York City, the fire hydrant blasted. And to our immense jealousy, we could hear our friends down there playing in the gushing water, their absolute joy making its way up through our open windows. But I learned that the deeper I went into my books, the more time I took with each sentence, the less I heard the noise of the outside world. And so unlike my siblings who were racing through books, I read slowly, very, very slowly. I was that child with her finger running beneath the words until I was untaught to do this, told big kids don't use their fingers. In third grade, we were made to sit with our hands folded on our desk, unclasping them only to turn the pages and returning them to that position. Our teacher wasn't being cruel. It was the 1970s, and her goal was to get us reading not just on grade level, but far above it. And we were always being pushed to read faster. But in the quiet of my apartment, outside of my teacher's gaze, I let my finger run beneath those words, and that selfish giant again told me his story, how he had felt betrayed by the kids sneaking into his garden, how he had built this high wall, and it did keep the children out. But a gray winter fell over his garden and just stayed and stayed. With each rereading, I learned something new about the hard stones of the roads that the kids were forced to play on when they got expelled from the garden, about the gentleness of a small boy that appeared one day, and even about the giant himself. Maybe his words weren't rageful after all. Maybe they were a plea for empathy, for understanding. My own garden is my own garden. Years later, I would learn of a writer named John Gardner who referred to this as the fictive dream or the dream of fiction. And I would realize that this was where I was inside that book, spending time with the characters and the world that the author had created and invited me into. As a child, I knew that stories were meant to be savored, that stories wanted to be slow, and that some author had spent months, maybe years, writing them. And my job as the reader is especially as the reader who wanted to one day become a writer, was to respect that narrative. Long before there was cable or the internet or even the telephone, there were people sharing ideas and information and memory through story. It's one of our earliest forms of connective technology. It was the story of something better down the Nile that sent the Egyptians moving along it. 
the story of a better way to preserve the dead that brought King Tut's remains into the 21st century. And more than two million years ago, when the first humans began making tools from stone, someone must have said, what if? And someone else remembered the story. And whether they told it through words or gestures or drawings, it was passed down, remembered, hit a hammer, and hear its story. The world is getting noisier. We've gone from boom boxes to Walkmen, to portable CD players, to iPods, to any song we want whenever we want it. We've gone from the four television channels of my childhood to the seeming infinity of cable and streaming. As technology moves us faster and faster through time and space, it seems to feel like stories getting pushed out of the way, I mean literally pushed out of the narrative. But even as our engagement with stories change, are the trappings around it morph from book to audio to Instagram to Snapchat? We must remember our finger beneath the words. Remember that story, regardless of the format, has always taken us to places we never thought we'd go, introduced us to people we never thought we'd meet, and shown us worlds that we might have missed. So while as technology keeps moving faster and faster, I am good with something slower. My finger beneath the words has led me to a life of writing books for people of all ages, books meant to be read slowly, to be savored. My love for looking deeply and closely at the world, for putting my whole self into it, and by doing so, seeing the many, many, many possibilities of a narrative turned out to be a gift, because taking my sweet time taught me everything I needed to know about writing. And writing taught me everything I needed to know about creating worlds where people could be seen and heard, where their experiences could be legitimized, and where my story, read or heard by another person, inspired something in them that became a connection between us, a conversation. And isn't that what this is all about? Finding a way at the end of the day to not feel alone in this world, and a way to feel like we've changed it before we leave? Stone to hammer, man to mummy, idea to story, and all of it. Remember it. Sometimes we read to understand the future. Sometimes we read to understand the past. We read to get lost, to forget the hard times we're living in. And we read to remember those who came before us, who lived through something harder. I write for those same reasons. Before coming to Brooklyn, my family lived in Greenville, South Carolina, in a segregated neighborhood called Nicoltown. All of us there were the descendants of a people who had not been allowed to learn to read or write. Imagine that, the danger of understanding how letters form words, the danger of words themselves, the danger of illiterate people and their stories. But against this backdrop of being threatened with death for holding on to a narrative, our stories didn't die. Because there is yet another story beneath that one. And this is how it has always worked. For as long as we've been communicating, there's been the layering to the narrative, the stories beneath the stories and the ones beneath those. This is how story has and will continue to survive. As I began to connect the dots that connected the way I learned to write, and the way I learned to read to an almost silenced people, I realized 
that my story was bigger and older and deeper than I would ever be. And because of that, it will continue. Among these almost silenced people, there were the ones who never learned to read. Their descendants, now generations out of enslavement, if well off enough, had gone on to college, grad school, beyond. Some, like my grandmother and my siblings, seemed to be born reading as though history stepped out of their way. Some, like my mother, hitched onto the Great Migration Wagon, which was not actually a wagon, and kissed the South goodbye. But here is the story within that story. Those who left and those who stayed carried with them the history of a narrative, knew deeply that writing it down wasn't the only way they could hold on to it, knew they could sit on their porches or their stoops at the end of a long day and spin a slow tale for their children. They knew they could sing their stories through the thick heat of picking cotton and harvesting tobacco, knew they could preach their stories or sew them into quilts, turn the most painful ones into something laughable, and through that laughter, exhale the history of a country that tried again and again and again to steal their bodies, their spirit, and their story. So as a child, I learned to imagine an invisible finger taking me from word to word, from sentence to sentence, from ignorance to understanding. So as technology continues to speed ahead, I continue to read slowly. Knowing that I am respecting the author's work and the story's lasting power, and I read slowly to drown out the noise and remember those who came before me, who probably the first people who finally learned to control fire and circled its new, their new power of flame and light and heat. And I read slowly to remember the selfish giant, how he finally tore that wall down and let the children run free through his garden. And I read slowly to pay homage to my ancestors who are not allowed to read at all. They too must have circled fires, speaking softly of their dreams, their hopes, their futures. Each time we read, write, or tell a story, we step inside their circle, and it remains unbroken, and the power of story lives on. Thank you. Raising Independent Thinkers. This show is a space for families who are homeschooling or thinking about homeschooling. We'll explore alternative teaching methods, federal and state homeschooling laws, and most importantly, this show is a platform where families can inspire one another on how to raise independent thinkers. I'm your host, Bathsheba Omani, Montessori educator, homeschooling consultant, owner of Homeschool Guide, LLC, and mother of two. Let's get started.
Good evening, everyone. This is the Raising Independent Thinker Show with your host, Bathsheba. Hope you all are doing well. Hope you're feeling blessed this week. So I unfortunately um, had some bad news, which made my heart feel pretty heavy this week. One of my um, nieces had passed away earlier this week, and it was very untimely and very sudden. And I ask that you all, you know, just keep um, my family in your thoughts and prayers. Send some healing, peace, and love, especially to my brother. Um, My niece's name was Zaina Kay, and she had a beautiful spirit, a smile that would brighten anyone's day. And I will truly, truly miss her so much. But I know that a part of her is still here, and I'm just grateful for all the memories that I have of her. So today, um, I thought I would teach a little, and my topic is on pre-reading strategies young children need to be successful readers. And I'm very pleased to be talking about this topic because most parents are interested in teaching your child to read and understanding the importance of reading. So the video I just played in the beginning is called What Reading Slowly Taught Me About Writing. And it's by Jacqueline Woodson, who's an American writer. And she talks about her love for reading and the importance of appreciating stories. And I really like how she talks about, um, she emphasizes the importance of reading slowly, even though technology is speeding. Um and, and we're just moving so quickly in society. And it made me think of how both of my children were avid readers, and they still enjoy reading now as young adults. And I, I know for me as a kid, reading was one of my escapes. And I would just love getting into a, new, a good book. I remember after school, we were told to stay outside until it was time for dinner. <laughs> and some days I would just take a book, and read it on the stoop for hours and hours at a time. So reading um, was always an important part of my life. And I, I couldn't even imagine not being able to, to learn to read. And years ago, the library was one of our favorite places to go when I was a kid. And also when my kids were young, both of them learned to read before the age of five. And it was very important for me to build that foundation and immerse them with a language-rich environment, which I'll get into a little bit later. But before I get into the topic, I did want to talk about the dangers of rushing children in learning academics. You know, we are in this, like, microwave generation, and we have been for a while now, where everything is quick and fast, And as an early childhood teacher of 20-plus years, I've noticed the amount of pressure that our youngest children, I'm talking infants and toddlers, are pushed into learning academics. And I'm not sure if any of you feel it, but there's this push in teaching our young children all these abstract concepts. You know, I can't count the number of times where I hear parents testing their little ones like saying, what color is this? How many, are, how many are there? What number is this? And I used to do the same thing with my kids 
um, of course, before I knew better. But I didn't realize the amount of pressure I was putting on my children at that young age. And again, I'm talking about infants and toddlers. So there's this pressure to keep up, to learn faster, to skip steps. And we know um, that children are natural learners and natural explorers. And it's important not to bow down to mainstream pressure when we're guiding our children. And it's funny because when I see um, many parents testing their children, especially in front of other people, you'll notice that a lot of times the child won't say anything. <laughs> like it's as if they know exactly what they're trying to do. And and they don't like that feeling um, yeah, I don't know what the word is, but they don't like that feeling. Um, so a lot of times they just won't say anything. Even if they know the answer, they won't say anything. So children under the age of three should be focusing more on concrete reasoning, um, more hands-on activity, learning about the world around them, building their vocabulary. And this all happens naturally in a language-rich environment. Um, so I'm going to take a short break. Um, if you would like to join into the conversation, please call in. I would love to know how reading plays, you know, played a role in your life. And you can call in at 425-569-5169 and press number one. A long time ago, there lived a giant, a selfish giant, whose stunning garden was the most beautiful in all the land. One evening, this giant came home and found all these children playing in his garden, and he became enraged. My own garden is my own garden, the giant said, and he built this high wall around it. The author, Oscar Wilde, wrote the story of the selfish giant in 1888. Almost a hundred years later, that giant moved into my Brooklyn childhood and never left. I was raised in a religious family and I grew up reading both the Bible and the Quran. The hours of reading both religious and recreational far outnumbered the hours of television watching. Now on any given day, you could find my siblings and I curled up in some part of our apartment reading. Sometimes unhappily, because on summer days in New York City, the fire hydrant blasted. And to our immense jealousy, we could hear our friends down there playing in the gushing water, their absolute joy making its way up through our open windows. But I learned. I'm just curious. anything just let me know who's here okay we got a few parents in here now the whole audience let's give them a round of applause because being a parent is no small thing and the reason why 
I have such a, I, I see myself as like an ally, an advocate for parents, because at this stage in my academic career, I am privileged to sit on uh, some high levels of education policy globally. I sit on three different uh, major organizations, and we're all looking at this outcome. How do we prepare children to thrive in the future? What does a student in 2030 who's going to be at this level in their academic career, what skills do they need to know? And if you're a parent, that's a terrifying question. Because whether we say it out loud or not, we don't really know what education is going to look like in 2030. We are all putting together our best educated guesses. But technology is rapidly changing. There's a buzzword that flows around, 21st century skills. Have you heard it? It's like a selling phrase on a lot of things, 21st century skills. In education, it's like a sexy word, you know, like 21st century skills, and you automatically assume that I know everything when I don't. <laughs> but here's the thing. Um, what we're saying when we use the term 21st century skills, we're trying to provide you with our best educated assumption on what education is going to look like and what skills students need to have to thrive in the future. And if you look at the World Economic Forums, this is their um, review of lifelong learning. And these are the skill sets they feel students need. We have far more here under foundational literacies than reading, writing, and arithmetic. And for the parents, grandparents, adults, stakeholders in the room, if we're honest with ourselves, the education that we're preparing children for is not the education we receive. So we're all learning at the same time. But it doesn't stop there. Then we go from foundational literacies to competencies. And we start pulling in skills like we moved past literacy to digital literacy, uh, global competency. Now we're thinking about critical thinking skills and creativity and innovation, which are buzzwords within the larger community in itself. But then we move on to character traits. And if you look at the OECD's Education 2030 framework, they have designed 11 well-being areas. I'm going to pause so you can like look at some of these um, notable suggestions. These are all areas we feel children should have if they're going to do well in the future. As adults, if you look at this, how many of these skills can you say, you know what, in Hong Kong, we are knocking this out of the park. Like, civic engagement, you know, we rock 2014. You know, we, we, we kind of, we're, we're clear on that. Uh, housing, you know, apartment hunting here is enjoyable. The landlords are the best. Whoever my future landlord is, I love you. Don't raise my rent. <laughs> and the biggest one, work-life balance. If anyone in the room feels like you understand work-life balance, please let me know. I'll try to get you on stage next year because you have a message Hong Kong really needs to hear. But for the parents who are in the room and, you know, you're laughing along, but in the, in the pit of your stomach is this nervousness because you're like, you know what, I really have no idea uh, how I'm going to do this or how much it's going to cost me to get my child to this skill set. I am here to share with you a research-based, evidence-proven resource that is outstanding, Parent-Child Reading Aloud. And Parent-Child Reading Aloud, between the ages of zero to five and even further, 
But during these foundational years, it's a powerful thing. Now, unfortunately, in Hong Kong, a lot of times when I say things about parent-child reading aloud, I get parents that hear me, and they think, okay, I get my child to the point where they can read, and then I envision them reading alone, reading very impressive books like Lemony Snicket's A Series of Unfortunate Events at the Age of Six, you know, because we're, we're hard achievers in Hong Kong. Like, I want to see them reading dense books and loving it by themselves. And I want to say, actually, that's one outcome, but the power of parent-child reading aloud is more than just the skill, it's the bonding. And if anyone has experience being read to or reading to a child, there is something, and I'm going to use an unscientific term to describe it, it is absolutely magical if you experience enjoying a story with a child. But that magic is not sprinkling through Hong Kong the way I'd hoped. Uh, the theme for this TEDx is uh, emergence. This was my moment of emergence. I was, uh, in 2014, I was starting my doctoral research uh, in Hong Kong on early childhood literacy, and you know, I've told you a bit of who I am, and I came in after doing a master's uh, in Beijing, so I already knew, I already knew I wanted to research this area, and I knew I was passionate about parent-child reading aloud, and I'm like, I'm gonna come to Hong Kong, and I heard about the refugee situation, so I'm like, I'm gonna be the Michelle Obama of this movement, and I'm gonna like help equality and all of that, it's gonna be awesome. And then, um, I found out the rate of Hong Kong's engagement in early childhood literacy activities. We were last, guys, we were last. And I was like, no! <laughs> and I had to make an epic decision. I decided right then and there I could spend the next four years getting my credentials and then addressing the issue, or I could drop my bucket right where I was and get involved in helping. And that's what I did. I went to parents where they were. If you talk to parents and you ask them why they don't engage, they'll tell you time. So I went to the corporate office. I didn't stop there. I went to the communities. I went to the refugee asylum centers, and I shared everything I knew about effective early childhood literacy. And it boiled down to these four things. Talk, read, sing, play. Now, if you want to hear more, you got to ask me back, because I'm down to like four minutes. But I will tell you a little bit more about read. If you can read at least 15 minutes a day, the research says that's the minimum amount of time you need to invest in order to start seeing some outcomes. But I want to go beyond just the 15 minutes. I want to talk to you about the power of reading in a way that ties back into those 21st century skills. One foundational skill is global competency, the ability to collaborate and work well with others. Technology has made the world flat. And there's a high probability that in the future, students are going to work with students from different parts of the world at earlier and earlier stages. What better way to introduce them to the world than through a children's book that presents a child being a child, something they relate to? And who better to teach them that than by someone they love more than anyone in this world, the parent, in the safest place that should be the safest place, the home. And if you allow yourself to engage in this idea of reading aloud with a child, maybe we can do something about this. The PEARLS stands for the Progress and in International Reading Literacy Study, and it's issued every five years. 2011 was the most recent cycle when I started. As of December 2017, they released the latest results. 
the 2016 pearls. Good news, we moved up two spots. Uh, if you're looking at the United States and England, no, 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 we're not higher than them. They didn't take the take-home survey, so they're just there to let you know, like, they didn't participate. We, but we beat Macau and we beat Morocco, you know, woo! <laughs> we're on our way, Hong Kong, stories of us. <laughs> but I tell you this much in all seriousness, we got a great deal of work to do. We do. And whether we are reading aloud with our children, engaging with our children in loving ways, or if we feel like we're being absorbed into the wider pressure of society that's trying to make us think we need to be on the cutting edge of every new class or every new course, our children are following in our footsteps. And this opportunity to be in front of you is to let you know there are people like myself who are advocating for you, who take issue with the fact that you are dealing with a lot of pressure, financially, socially, to raise children that meet this ideal that's always changing. But one thing remains the same. If you are willing to set up a tradition of reading aloud with your child, creating a pathway of storytelling, which opens up conversation, you can build a bridge. We don't know what the world is going to look like, but if you have established a pattern of reading aloud with your children, talking about civic events, using that story time to have conversation, you can pull into that into the future. And when you notice your child may be dealing with bullying, may be dealing with emotional issues, you can grab a storybook, you can sit down with that child, and you can talk to each other through a story. You create a space of dialogue, and you remind them of the pattern you already have, so it's not some new thing. They already know this is what we do. So, my call to action to you all, in another five years, another Pearls exam will come forward. Let's all come back with a story to tell about how we built a bridge that connects our children to a better tomorrow. Okay, I'm back. This is the Raising Independent Thinker Show, and today I'm talking about pre-reading strategies. Young children need to be successful readers. Um, I'm so excited to announce that I'll have a special guest on January the 31st at 7 p.m. Um, Farida Goodman is a longtime educator and literacy coach from New York, and she'll be joining us the last Sunday of this month. And we're going to be discussing literacy strategies. So please mark um, that on your calendar. It's January 31st. And make sure you write down any questions that you may have for Farida to answer for that day. So the video I just played is called Why We All Need to Start Reading Aloud to Our Kids um, by Keisha Sorobo. And she's a literacy advocate and graduate from the University of Hong Kong. And I just love her spirit and her passion toward early childhood and her passion toward um, reading out loud, which, which I don't, you know, it's, it seems like um, parents are not doing it as much. And I like that she talked about the effective ways to encourage early childhood literacy. She says, talk, read, sing, and play. And I agree with all of these ways. So language development 
as we know, begins before birth. And we know as early as six months gestation, babies can learn their mother's and father's voices in the, while they're in the womb. And this is why they say it's important to talk to your baby while you're pregnant. And I say go as far as reading to your baby, you know, singing to your baby, because they're, they're absorbing your native language while inside of you, which is so amazing to think about. So with infants and toddlers, it's important to use clear words while talking and responding to them. And at this age, they're acquiring a capacity for language just by listening and interacting with their parents. It's important to be mindful how we're pronouncing our words. They even pick up on our accents. And it makes me think about that really cute video of the father and the son sitting on the couch and they're just communicating with each other over about a TV show. I think the dad had like 47 plus million likes on social media, which is crazy. But that was the best example of what's called serve and turn, which is when the child serves by reaching out for interaction with eye contact, um, facial expression, gestures, babbling. And then the parent will return the serve by speaking back. So that was really a good example. Hold on, give me one minute. Just getting my computer here together. Okay. So talking and singing to your child throughout the day is important, especially things um, as simple as what you're doing. And it increases vocabulary as well as having benefits to brain development. And singing is also a good opportunity for children to learn, to listen, and to respond, even if you feel you can't sing. <laughs> I always say if you can talk, you can sing. And the best thing about children is that they don't, they don't care if you sing off tune, you know. And singing also encourages children to match words with physical action. Um, let me know, you know, in the chat if there's any favorite songs that you guys love singing to your child. I know one of my favorites was Open Shut Them when my, my kids were young. They loved that. So other pre-reading strategies that I'll talk about is learning through play, which Maria Montessori says play is the work, which in other words, children learn through play. So as a Montessori teacher, there's a sequence of language lessons that I have used and I've shared with parents prior to the child learning to read. And um, the sequence has been very successful. So today I'll talk about um, several, several ways that you can, um, or several strategies where you can help your child. And um, you may want to write some of these things down. The first one being the three period lesson which is a hallmark of Montessori education. And it was actually developed by Edward Seguin, who was a French physician. And it was to help children learn vocabulary and concepts. So step one is naming and introducing an object. Step two is recognizing and identifying the object. And step three is memorizing or testing and remember, I talked about testing under the age of two, two and a half to three is a no-no. 
But once a child is at least three years old, it's then appropriate to ask them, what is this? And this method is a way of presenting new information to your child. And most of the times I use three-period lesson um, when I'm just introducing an object or a picture card. I've used this lesson with a simple knob, knob puzzle as well. So the next pre-reading lesson is object-to-object matching, which is another one of the first lessons in pre-reading skills. And it's language development, and it's perfect for um, a young preschooler. The next one is called object-to-picture matching, which, you know, you have a picture card matching to an object. And it's always fun to get pictures and objects that, your your little one find interesting, like if they are interested in dinosaurs or um, a certain type of animal or cars. And again, this is to help with language development. The next one um, is classification cards. And there are so many different ways in using classification to teach language. Um, I'll share one, one way, and that is classifying various um, amphibians. So you would find pictures of amphibians, let's say different types of frogs. Uh, you have a tree frog, African dwarf frog, glass frog, ghost frog. Um, and what you can do with a toddler is show them the pictures, use the three period lesson, depending on the child's understanding. Now, all of these lessons will be shown. Um, I think I'm going to show them on my website at home-schoolguide.com. And I'll be posting several videos this week on some of the pre-language lessons in the resource section. So make sure you subscribe to the website to get reminders on that. So the next lesson um, that I wanted to share are simple nomenclature cards. And nomenclature comes from a Latin term referring to the assignment of names. So simple nomenclature cards are also known as three-part cards. Um, the nomenclature can cover botany, zoology, and other sciences. And you can also use the same three-period lesson while presenting the cards. The first period being identifying the um, is identifying the parts. So you may be showing the parts of a butterfly and say, this is a butterfly for the first card. The next card can be a picture of the wings, which is part of the butterfly. And then the last card is a picture of the antennas, which is another part of the butterfly. So the second period would be recognition, where you might say, can you show me the antennas or can you show me where the wings are? And then the third period would be for the child to recall what they see. And that's where you're going to ask them, what is this? So um, the next lesson is story sequence cards. And this is a great activity for an older toddler and young preschooler. This lesson is great for teaching how to recognize a storyline. So... As we know, every story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And you can start off with maybe three or four cards um, per story. So, for example, you can create cards for a simple flower story. 
And the first card would maybe show a seed. The next card might show the seed getting water from the rain. And then the last card um, being a flower, the end. (laughs) And when you present um, the story sequence cards, you want to do it horizontally from left to right because this is the way the child will start to train their eye for reading. Um, And there's there's other activities that I usually, um, I would out in the classroom and it was, it was similar in that the way I would, um, the way I would have them like set up, I would have it all from left to right. And again, just training, training their eye for reading. So I think I'm going to stop right there. (laughs) Um, There are quite a few more strategies and lessons that I would love to share, such as how to introduce phonetic sounds using sandpaper letters, um, sound games, rhyming games, and other techniques. Um, and I might as well make this a series of discussion because I'm feeling like I have more to say. And again, I will post some resources on these lessons this week. I think I might do some videos because um, it's easier to show you visually how to present the lessons. Um, Also, if you're interested in homeschooling and you're needing some support, please schedule a consultation. Or um, I also have a how to homeschool webinar available on the website. And if you are a teacher who's interested in teaching online or you know someone um, for this upcoming school year, please send me your resume homeschoolguide number one at gmail.com. Um, I'm looking for innovative educators who are looking for opportunities to use their creativity. So please shoot me your resume and I will get back to you. And remember on the 31st, we have a special guest for Rita Goodman, literacy coach joining us. Okay. I hope you all have a wonderful week. Stay blessed.